G'day and welcome to The Policy Shop, a place where we think about policy choices. The consul banged the table and said, If you've got no passport, you're officially dead. But we are still alive, my dear. But we are still alive. Went to a committee, they offered me a chair. Asked me politely to return next year. But where shall we go today, my dear? But where shall we go today? Came to a public meeting, the speaker got up and said, If we let them in, they will steal our daily bread. He was talking of you and me, my dear. He was talking of you and me. It's nearly Christmas, that time of the year when many in the world will reflect on a Middle Eastern family far from home searching for shelter in a world unsympathetic to refugees. Feelings toward refugees have changed little in the thousands of years since, but the problem has become more substantial. The number of displaced people in the world today is the highest ever, surpassing even post-World War II numbers. At the end of 2015, over 65 million people were displaced. A little under 1% of the Earth's population is either an asylum seeker, internally displaced, or a refugee. Both here in Australia and across the world, nations are grappling with this global crisis. So joining us today on The Policy Shop for a special episode on this subject of today's refugee crisis is William Maley, Professor of Diplomacy at the Asia-Pacific College of Diplomacy at the Australian National University and author of the recently published book, What is a Refugee? William, before uh, we get to the issues of today, can we start by going back in time and ask, when did the word refugee enter our vocabulary? The first known use of the word as an English expression uh, came about uh, with the persecution of the Huguenots in France uh, at the time of the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in uh, 1685, uh, that being the 1598 edict that had given these Protestants a degree of autonomy in Catholic France. And with the revocation of the edict, people fled to neighbouring countries. Some made their way to England. And at that point, the word uh, refugee was extracted from the French word refugié uh, and made its way into the English language. So it's quite an old expression. So some people have argued that it was the creation of the nation state that created the concept of the refugee. But you're saying this happened within a nation. Yeah, the, the word refugee came about well before people began to focus on the phenomenon of refugee movements. And uh, uh, two factors uh, have been crucial in that development. One is the establishment of uh, states as predominant models for political organisation, particularly in Europe. Uh, But in terms of uh, political developments uh, involving human beings, it was really the Bolshevik Revolution that provided the substantial flow of people from one part of the world to another that really focused attention on the possibility of mass refugee movements. Before that, there had been refugees, people like Marx and Lenin, but they tended to be regarded as political exiles and Uh, individuals rather than part of a wider wave of people making their way from one part of the world to another. So let's just focus then on the definition. Um, In international law, what constitutes a refugee? Uh, A refugee under the 1951 convention relating to the status of refugees is a person uh, who is outside 
his or her country of nationality and by virtue of a well-founded fear of being persecuted for a range of reasons that the convention sets out race, religion, uh, membership of a particular social category or political opinion, is unable to return to his or her country of nationality. So your book, What is a Refugee?, makes the argument that though we think of these as a distinct category, there are very different types of refugees. So you're arguing from a policy perspective that it's important not to view refugees as a distinct entity, but in fact to deal with the differences of kind. Indeed, I'm reminded of a frightening quote from Hannah Arendt in The Origins of Totalitarianism, where in discussing the difficulties of surviving as a stateless person, of which she'd been one, uh, Arendt remarks, a dog with a name has a better chance to survive than a stray dog who's just a dog in general. The phrase dog in general is rather striking as a metaphor for human beings who lack state rights. Yes, I think it's important to recognise that you can have very different sorts of refugees. Um, For example, Thomas Munn, who was a writer of great eminence, was able without great difficulty to re-establish himself in the United States as a writer who continued his work as a novelist. He was plainly not somebody who was in desperate need of assistance uh, from the host country uh, which provided him with uh, asylum. On the other hand, if people have been forced by desperate urgency to flee across uh, a land border, they may have literally nothing. They may have no food, no shelter, uh, no access to drinking water, no way in which they can find any pathway forward. And uh, it's those people who Uh, require specific forms of assistance either through states or through offices such as the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. So thinking about the history here, uh, Australia before the Second World War had a fairly narrow definition of who was allowed in. Um, As the world convened at the Evian Conference in 1938 to talk about assisting Jewish refugees, Australia's delegate famously said, as we have no real racial problem, we are not desirous of importing one an anti-Semitic fear that seems mirrored in many ways by the anti-Muslim rhetoric we hear recently. Do you see great continuity in the way Australians have understood refugees and policies been framed around them? Yes, I think there is considerable continuity there that very often people have stereotypical images of refugees which then default to notions of good refugees who line up in queues to be resettled and bad refugees who actually act of their own volition to try to secure uh, a degree of uh, protection. Yet we know from historical experience, again going back to the time of the Evian Conference, that states often fall well short of what could realistically be expected of them when it comes to providing uh, protection to groups that may not be enormously popular. And one of the really tragic features of the Evian Conference was that only one state, the Dominican Republic, actually offered substantial resettlement places for Jewish refugees from Nazi Germany and most other participants in that conference for looking for excuses for doing as little as possible. Including our country. Indeed, yes. Now, in fact, uh, Australia ended up resettling quite a lot of uh, Jewish refugees at the time, partly because there were domestic pressure groups and opinion leaders who opposed the harsh kind of approach that uh, the Lyons government was uh, putting forward at that time. But uh, in most countries, at most times, there will be a fairly solid cohort of people who reject the idea that 
those in need of protection should be given it. Uh, and that can be fueled by arguments such as that charity should begin at home uh, through to claims that people are not really genuine refugees but economic migrants. And when I hear that, I tend to remind people that the term economic migrant or Wirtschaftsimmigrant was actually coined by the Nazis in the, uh, the 1930s as a way of denigrating Jews who were seeking to leave Germany. Australia's also had some periods where it's behaved extremely well and one thinks of the response in the 1970s to Vietnamese boat people, but you draw attention in the book in particular to the approach of former Australian Prime Minister Robert Menzies in 1949. Can you say a little about Robert Menzies' approach to refugees? Yes. uh, Menzies stated his views to the House of Representatives in uh, 1949 in the context of a debate that was sparked by the uh, disposition of Arthur Corwell, who was the immigration minister at the time, to force the removal from Australia of a Mrs O'Keefe, who was a non-white wartime refugee who'd married an Australian. And uh, Corwell, in fact, accused Menzies and Percy Spender of plotting to smash the white Australia policy. And then it was partly because Menzies, uh, in a very powerful speech, and I'll quote it here, said that policy with respect to refugees, quote, must be applied by a sensible administration, neither rigid nor peremptory, but wise, exercising judgment on individual cases, always remembering the basic principle, but always understanding that harsh administration never yet improved any law but only impaired it, and that notoriously harsh administration raises up to any law hostilities that may someday destroy it. And I think there we see a very stark difference between the approach that Menzies defended and the approach which has characterised policy more recently where the kind of rigidity that was characteristic of Arthur Corwell's approach has resurfaced with a vengeance with ministers like uh, Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton and some of their senior bureaucrats who seem to be of the view that that even if you let one person with serious medical problems enter Australia, it, it's uh, the from a place like Nauru or Manus, it can be the breach in the dam that's going to lead to a, a flood to materialise and That's the kind of approach that I think Menzies would have regarded as just silly. As harsh administration, as you call it. Uh, Yes, exactly. Or as he called it. And so we can see quite a bit of continuity, a number of strands of continuity in in Australian policy, Um, a country whose national anthem says, for those who've come across the seas with boundless plains to share. Can you say say something about the scale of those who've come across the seas? Um, How many people are we talking about when we start um, getting specific? We're actually talking about vastly smaller numbers than people realise. And the statistic which I think best captures that is that if one took everybody who had arrived by boat in Australia without authorisation in the last 40 years and put them into the Melbourne cricket ground, more than a quarter of the seats would still be unoccupied. We're simply not talking about movements on uh, a large scale or movements that could even begin to rival the kind of movements that occur when there's an opportunity to cross a land border or just a narrow strait of the kind that we saw people navigating on their way to Europe last year. Australia, in fact, is a very difficult uh, country and continent to reach because of the substantial oceans that surround Australia at every point. And there's an argument which says that it's only the most entrepreneurial and determined refugees who are likely to attempt the voyage or make it. And arguably, that's the very kind of spirit that one needs in a young democracy. 
Do other countries frame their policy toward refugees on the basis of the transport they use to get here? No. In fact, the Refugee Convention specifically contains a provision that uh, a refugee is not to be penalised by virtue of unauthorised uh, arrival in a country of uh, of origin. And that together with the so-called non-refoulement obligation that prevents a person being returned to a country where they would have a well-founded fear of being persecuted, it makes up the core um, obligation that is imposed by the 1951 Convention. And there's a reason for that, which is that the 1930s taught the lesson that states are often simply not equal to dealing with the kind of threats that individuals face. And there were notorious episodes like the so-called Voyage of the Damned in 1939 when a vessel called the St. Louis set out from um, Hamburg uh, heading first to Havana and then to Miami. And because of strict quotas in the United States under the 1924 Johnson-Reed Act, it was unable to disembark in the United States the Jewish uh, refugees who had boarded the ship and it returned to the low countries and many of the people who had been on the ship were then caught up when uh, Germany invaded the western states in uh, May 1940 and the estimate is that over a quarter of the people who were on the St Louis ended up dying in the Holocaust. That haunted people who were making policy in the aftermath of the Second World War and uh, a very clear message of the 51 Convention was that people uh, can require protection even if they haven't fallen into the grasp of bureaucratic processes. Uh, and so in a sense, the, the notion of penalising people by virtue of their mode of arrival, say by boat, goes against one of the core principles underpinning the 1951 Convention. And Australia, of course, signed that convention in 1954. What's our record been since then on this very important principle of not sending people back to where they might face reasonable fear of persecution? Well, the record uh, for a very long period of time was actually pretty good in that uh, respect. But in recent times, we have seen attempts to uh, send people back to Afghanistan, for example, uh, which uh, I visit fairly regularly and which is an exceedingly dangerous country for people of particular groups. Uh, in fact, when I was in uh, Kabul a couple of years ago, I uh, spoke to somebody who had been uh, uh, forcibly deported from Australia after his uh, refugee status claim was, I think, very poorly handled by uh, the bureaucracy. And he had been seized by the Taliban and, and uh, severely tortured and suffered from obviously severe post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, so we don't have uh, a particularly good record just at present and that's partly because within government circles and bureaucratic agencies there's a sense that being seen to be sending people back to countries like that is part of a package of measures to deter people from those countries from seeking to come to a place like Australia in the first place. So your book What is a Refugee quotes from the political theorist uh, Chandra and Kukathas uh, and the quote is impressive. If refugees and asylum seekers are to be welcomed into any society and shown a measure of hospitality, this will not be because the polity is welcoming, but because the society is so. In other words, an argument that the policy frame tends to reflect social values and social beliefs. How much is our refugee policy, in fact, a play of Australian politics rather than a response to our legal or other obligations? I think it's very much a reflection of uh, domestic political calculations or a particular 
perception by major political parties of domestic political constraints. It's interesting to go back to the late 1990s here because when Pauline Hanson emerged as a, a political figure in 1996, she began to articulate views which were repudiated by a lot of different uh, circles in Australia. But then, uh, even though she lost her seat at the 1998 election, her party did reasonably well in terms of votes at the federal election, managing even 10% of the vote in the ACT, uh, after having done very well indeed in the Queensland state election. That's right. Uh, And that created, I think, an atmosphere in which from 1998 to 2001, there was mounting alarm within uh, the government because of the sense that even though the One Nation Party had torn itself to pieces on internecine grounds, the people who had taken the big decision of departing from voting for a major party in 1998 were going to be the swinging voters in 2001. They were up for grabs, having made the psychological leap of abandoning a vote for the coalition or for the Labor Party. And that, I think, set the scene for the Tampa affair uh, in 2001 because uh, it wasn't possible to do a preference deal with One Nation because the nationals in Queensland would have been blitzed under those circumstances. So the next best thing, given that Prime Minister Howard certainly wasn't going to go down the the pathway of protectionism that that, um, Hanson was uh, outlining, uh, opted instead to try to walk away with her policy in the area of of refugees. The the idea of only giving refugees temporary protection visas, for example, came straight from Pauline Hanson. She was the first person to put that view forward in Australia. And uh, I don't think we would have had the Tampa affair without the rise of uh, One Nation. Now, one irony, however, is that it's probably led to a situation in which major parties are now spooked by this. Um, Just yesterday, the Australian National University published uh, the results of the Australian election study for 2016. And what it showed, interestingly, was that for only 6% of respondents was refugees and and asylum seekers the predominant issue. Uh, And for only 10% of respondents was it the second most important issue. And what this suggests is that um, parties, the major parties in particular, may now have an exaggerated degree of fear about this policy area. We know that even in 2013 from the same uh, study that after a six-month period when a lot of people had arrived historically speaking, by boat in Australia, the whole issue was worth less than 1% of the two-party preferred vote for uh, the coalition. So ironically, I think there is space for uh, a major party to take a more courageous and humane stand here, but I suspect the advice going to the leaderships of both the coalition and the Labor Party is don't go anywhere near the issue. Um, Why this lurch to um, more aggressive anti-refugee policies, it's played up as we discuss in a range of countries and often though not exclusively associated with a shift to the right. What's driving that? Uh, look, I think it's, it's partly uh, the way in which modern media of communication project into the lives of a wider number of people images of what is going on in the world. Uh, and really ever since the uh, uh, attacks in the United States in September 2001, uh, people have had an enhanced sense of proximity to 
crises that previously might not have been there, and that creates a more fertile space for populists and and right-wing activists to push their particular messages. And then on top of that, I think the, uh, the way in which politics has increasingly become for the major parties in a number of democracies, not a matter of engagement, but a matter of marketing, has led to a situation in which politicians on the right can convey an image of being more authentic than people who come out of the moderate centre. And of course, if you're going to demonise people as a way of positioning yourself as a political leader, you're going to go for people who are probably not going to be voting in an election, uh, who look different from us, whoever we may be under those sorts of circumstances. The flourishing of populism depends very much upon there being a certain disposition to think collectively or in a collectivistic fashion within wider populations. And I suspect a lot of people who don't take much interest in politics or public life are quite happy or comfortable thinking about uh, other people as members of collectives rather than as individuals with stories of their own. And that's one reason why in this particular book I've sought to bring out the individuality of refugees rather than just see them as an undifferentiated mass. So Australia is the only nation in the world to use other countries to process refugee claims and Australia's offshore detention policies have clearly come in for strident international political criticism. Indeed, in the New York Times today has an article criticising decisions in Australia. But if you're looking for a courageous party uh, that can see that 6% figure as top of mind issue and say that's worth taking on, what should be the policy response? How should Australia think about and respond to refugees? Uh, Look, I think the fundamental approach that's required is not to panic uh, and to recognise that because of its um, oceanic surrounds, Australia is never going to be confronted by uh, refugee movements on the scale that uh, one witnesses relatively regularly in Africa or uh, last year uh, into Europe. Uh, We're very much protected from that kind of uh, phenomenon. Uh, It's also the case that uh, refugees tend to add short-term resettlement costs. And uh, in the long run, uh, refugees have actually contributed a great deal to the economic life of Australia. If you look at the Business Review Weekly's annual register of the wealthiest Australians, it's actually quite startling how many people on that list were originally of refugee background. Uh, And uh, I think one of the reasons for this is that refugees often have come from an environment in which they don't feel remotely dependent upon the state because the state may have collapsed in the country from which they've come or may have been a persecutory force. So their inclination is very much to act of their own devices and and act entrepreneurially, which in the long run begins to contribute to the dynamism of uh, economic life in in, uh, a given country. But I think uh, the the greatest difficulty to overcome is actually in the context of continuing global war on terror, uh, a, a result of the suspicion, even if it's not particularly well-founded, that um, a refugee population is likely to have within it people who have been insinuated by terrorist groups with a view to striking against the host country. The irony Mm. here is that it's probably easier for a terrorist to get into Australia with a visa issued by the government than it would be to uh, reach Australia by boat. People who seek to come to Australia by boat tend to be scrutinised very stringently before they're released into the community. It's hard to smuggle much with you, isn't it, on an overcrowded boat? Yeah. Absolutely. And, and it's also the case that if you have a Western passport and 
it, it's relatively easy to get uh, either an electronic travel authority or uh, an electronic visa to come to Australia, which involves minimal scrutiny of your background. And it may well be the first time that you've had any contact with an actual Australian official will be when you materialise at one of the airports. And if you have an American passport, you can probably use an e-gate to enter Australia in any case. So a lot of the rules that uh, govern the management of tourist flows into Australia were put in place well before terrorism became an issue. And frankly, I think it's probably harder for foreign cheese and salami to get into Australia than for a foreign terrorist. Well, William, let's compare the Australian situation with the very different circumstances now in Europe. Uh, the war in Syria has created a crisis of a sort Europe hasn't experienced before. Um, more than a million refugees sought to cross into Europe in 2015. Uh, nearly 4,000 people reported dead or missing. What are your thoughts on this crisis and on the European responses? Yeah. On the, the people who perish on the way to uh, seeking protection, this is a serious problem, but it's very much a problem which is created by the way in which states themselves have systematically shut off uh, opportunities for people more safely to make their way to um, countries where they might potentially claim asylum. So, for example, carrier sanctions are now imposed on airlines that permit a person uh, without a visa to board a plane. And uh, and uh, since states routinely refuse tourist visas to people who come from countries like Syria or Afghanistan or Iraq, uh, where the situation is pretty dire. It's almost as if public policy has driven people into the arms of people smugglers as the only way in which uh, they can find their way out. So in a sense, states blame people smugglers for deaths at sea. But in a broader sense, a lot of the responsibility dies with states that have closed off routes of safe egress from uh, horror spots. In terms of the politics of the European situation, there are two dimensions that deserve attention here. One is that the numbers themselves are not that great. One yeah. million people in a continent with a population of 506 million um, is, is not unmanageable, but, but it's not managed. You talk about that population being the equivalent of five days of growth in world population. Yeah. That's right, yes. Uh, the, the, the numbers are not vast, but there is in Europe, a different kind of management challenge from that which one has in Australia, which is a classic collective action problem, that the burden initially falls very much on Greece and, uh, and to a lesser extent, on Italy. It's not a burden which initially falls across the different states of Europe. And so the optimal outcome from the point of view of many of these states is to uh, commit themselves as strongly as possible to supporting refugees, but in practice to do as little as they can get away with in terms of providing assistance. And that's led to situations in which some countries in Eastern Europe in particular, like Hungary, Poland and the Czech Republic, have done virtually nothing and have resisted the attempt to put in place quotas uh, which could distribute the burden away from just Greece and Italy towards other states. And this is a widely recognised problem in managing refugee populations. And uh, the lesson seems to be that you can come up with mechanisms for dealing this, but only if there are key states that are prepared to do a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of resettlement. And we saw that in Southeast Asia in 1989 with the Comprehensive Plan of Action for Indo-Chinese refugees. The key element 
there was that countries in the region were prepared to provide short-term accommodation for people fleeing Vietnam in particular in exchange for the commitment of the United States, Australia and Canada, the main resettlement states, to resettle everybody who was screened by UNHCR in the uh, camps of first asylum and found to be a refugee. Uh, with people who were not refugees then being returned to Vietnam. And this meant that the states in the region, the the states where people initially made landfall, were not worried that they were going to be left holding the cot, as it were, in the long run. Whereas um, there hasn't been this kind of commitment to heavy lifting uh, on a systematic basis in Europe. We saw Angela Merkel opening um, opportunities for people in Germany last year, but under domestic political pressure, that's closing off at the moment. At the end of 2016, we have a president-elect in the United States who's made clear his view on at least refugees or people from Mexico and elsewhere moving into the United States. We have a series of European nations that have retreated from early um, welcoming policies and have now brought back borders and in some cases built them for the first time. And we have a continuing public debate in Australia with a consensus amongst the major parties that's not welcoming to refugees. Are you optimistic that the sort of international cooperation you've just sketched as necessary can be achieved in this world? I'm not particularly optimistic in the short run. Uh, I think at the moment the domestic political pressures in many states actually militate against coming up with workable solutions to even specific regional problems. Uh, The refugee issue is always going to be with us because, in a sense, refugees are products of the very architecture of the system of states uh, and the failure of all states to provide to their own populations the kind of protection that arguably they're entitled to demand as citizens. From time to time, there will be mechanisms put in place to deal with particular local problems. But in a global sense, the refugee issue is one to be managed rather than solved. But it's not a a particularly propitious time at the moment for dealing even locally in an effective way with with challenges that have uh, arisen. And uh, I think given the mood of populism that has surged in many different countries, it's an open question when we may move back to more generous and humane policies. One of the reasons that the 51 Convention could actually be uh, adopted was that the Holocaust shocked people into recognising that it was not good enough to repudiate uh, refugees at, at the border. There was enough awareness of what the atrocious human consequences had been of indifference in the 1930s to drive um, a policy agenda in the 1950s that was more open and humane. But a lot of those sentiments have dissipated with the passage of time. And in fact, in December 2014, the Australian Parliament, at the instigation of the government, legislated to omit from the Migration Act all the uh, references to the 1951 convention ratified by the Menzies government that previously had been contained in that statute. And I think that's a reflection of the mood that we're looking at. Uh, It's tragic to say, but it may take another scandal beyond measure in order to shock states into uh, uh, a more generous uh, approach than they've been inclined to adopt in recent times. So in this uh, Christmas season, if the nativity scene played out again in 2016, would we think of Jesus as a refugee? No, I think we'd probably think of him either as a Q jumper or somebody who wasn't properly documented. You know, you can easily imagine Joseph and Mary fleeing with Jesus towards Egypt and being stopped at a border for not having appropriate documentation. 
Or we'd want to know which people smugglers got him into Bethlehem. Yeah. That's right, yes. It, it, it's, uh, it's ironical when you think that the accurate image of Jesus Christ is probably a single male of Middle Eastern appearance, exactly the kind of person who we deprioritize for resettlement when we do deals with places like the United States, that it seems to be women, children, and families rather than single males of Middle Eastern appearance that uh, um, find their way to the, the top of the list. Uh, and look, I do think there is a subliminal element of racism in a lot of these policies. The, the late Malcolm Fraser used to say that if people arriving in Australia by boat had been white Europeans of, of Christian uh, background, they wouldn't have been sent to detention centres. They would have been put up in the Hilton. And I think there's some truth in that. William Malley, congratulations on the publication of What is a Refugee? An important book and a provocative and timely argument. Thank you for being part of The Policy Shop. Thank you for the opportunity to discuss it. Thanks, Ben. The Policy Shop is produced by Owen Hahasi with audio engineering by Gavin Nabar. The poem at the beginning, Refugee Blues by W.H. Auden, was read by Paul Gray. Copyright, the University of Melbourne, 2016.